This edition of Farming the Countryside is brought to you by Pivot Bio Proven. Turn to a better nitrogen. Learn more at pivotbio.com. Welcome to Farming the Countryside. I'm Andrew McRae. Eric Snodgrass is one of the key voices farmers and those in agribusiness listen to for short and long-term forecasts for this country and around the world. What does he see ahead for U.S. producers? How reliable are the predictions? You may be surprised at the accuracy of forecasts depending on the length of time and how we should use those forecasts to make farming and marketing decisions. Plus, we discuss if weather is changing over the decades and how that might impact what we grow. It's our topic for this week's Farming the Countryside, brought to you by Pivot Bio. If you ask farmers what their greatest concern is this year, they will likely say rising nitrogen prices. For our farm, higher nitrogen prices and our desire to increase bushels with more sustainable farming methods led me to Pivot Bio Proven 40, which can produce up to the equivalent of 40 pounds of synthetic nitrogen. Our field demonstrations show an opportunity for a better ROI and a reduction of synthetic nitrogen. Turn to a better nitrogen with Pivot Bio. I hope you'll learn more. Just go to pivotbio.com. Eric Snodgrass is the principal atmospheric scientist for Nutrient. He speaks at numerous ag meetings throughout the year about weather forecasts and how or if we should rely on such prognostications in what we do. I think you'll come away with a better way to look at weather forecasts, providing us with a realistic yet advantageous way to use the weather. Here's our conversation. Eric Snodgrass is my guest, and Eric is going to be talking about all things weather and even more. Uh, Eric, number one, thanks for joining me today. And and secondly, maybe you just want to begin by talking about where we stand right now in, in maybe middle America. You know, we've been dry in a lot of places, but perhaps we're getting a little moisture. How do you feel that we stand as we head uh, looking into to plant a spring crop here soon? Yeah, well, the weather system that came out of the plains earlier this week really helped a lot with some of the moisture stress that was in the middle of the United States. And, you know, we had been up to about 75% of the land area in the lower 48 with some form of drought, either from abnormally dry all the way to exceptional drought. And some of the worst of that was down in the southern plains after this past winter just didn't deliver the moisture at all to that area. So we kind of sit here waiting to see how this unfolds through the rest of April as we get into May. Do the places that need that precipitation end up getting what they need? And uh, how about the eastern half of the Corn Belt as well? Does it continue to stay wet? Do we have tighter planting windows there? So yeah, it seems to be right now the country's divided right on the Mississippi River. You know, the further west you go, the the more drought stress you see. And the further east you go, we, we just we want it to stop raining. Yeah. You know, I noticed that you're you're right, that you look at the Mississippi River, even the Missouri River, once you get west, it gets drier. Have we improved our drought, though, where we were at this time last year for some of those areas? Or are we still just as dry or drier in some of those places? You know, it's funny you bring up last year because I went and looked at the past 22 years of drought. So our drought monitor out of University of Nebraska at Lincoln, that started in the year 2000. And I went back and I looked at every single March to see what the drought picture looked like. And the only year that looks similar to this year was last year. Now, we, we have more drought area last year, but there was greater drought 
way west. I'm talking about the, the four corner states into California. That was where the stresses really were, were starting to build up in a big way. So this time it's a bit farther to the east. It's got a larger area in the midsection of the country. And you ought to remember this too. In 2021, by the time we finished the month of April, we'd completely, you know, just destroyed that drought. It had shrunk back down into a smaller area. It was quite wet in the plains. And we're sitting here waiting. Can we get another April 2021? That'd be nice here for April 2022. You know, as we look out west, we normally focus on the Midwest, but I'm interested. We have had so many uh, wildfires and things that we think of in the West and, and perhaps even our agricultural producers out there. How do they stand in the Western United States now? Were they able to get some snows and extra uh, moisture this spring, or are we just as dry as ever as we look to the far West? Well, the Rocky Mountains are doing okay on total snowpack, and that's good. We need we need as much moisture as we can get in those Rocky Mountains at this time of year. Let's just keep going north, though, into the Pacific Northwest first. So earlier in the season, the Northern Rockies and the Cascades added up quite a bit of snow as well. So those are two areas that I am less concerned about in terms of that water melting, getting into the river systems and getting into the reservoirs, buying them time going into spring and summer with plenty of moisture. But if you just keep sliding south... In December, California got slammed. At one point, they were up to 200% of normal on snowpack. And then it just seemed like right at the beginning of the new year, it stopped and they flatlined. And what was once 200% of normal snowpack is now down to about 50 to 60% because they need to keep getting it. You got to remember, California has a Mediterranean climate, which means that their precipitation just normally stops in late April. And they don't usually get much more until we get into October of, of later on this year. So it's six months of dryness. And with their biggest reservoirs like Lake Shasta and Lake Oroville still below 50% full pool, the concern there is that we're going to go into another year of major water restrictions in California, which we got to remember, California leads the nation in the production of over 40 different fruits and vegetables plus milk. So stress on, on the water supply in California, most Americans feel that in the grocery store. And so we're going to have to watch this carefully. As we look into predictions, before we talk about that, I know you'll take this the right way, but how much can we truly predict? Because we often give folks in weather a hard time that, you know, we can't get it even two days out. So how reliable do you think our forecasts are as we want to look a few weeks to a few months to on into the summer and the fall? You're around this all the time. How well can we do predicting? Yeah, so out to about three days, the current accuracy of our weather forecast models is is within three percent. That's that's the number. So we do really well, and and it's kind of funny because it's I meet different people that define accuracy differently. You know, I got a guy that last week uh, when we I was in Kansas, and the guy comes up to me and says, "You know, they said the high today was going to be eighty two, and it was eighty five. Like, what happened?" I'm like, "What do you mean, what happened? That's a that's a great forecast. We were within a couple degrees. You know, he saw that as a failure. I see it as a major success." Uh, but, but you know, the, the bigger picture is this. I'll give you some numbers, okay? okay. Uh, our five-day forecast accuracy right now is about 92%. Our seven-day is about 82%. And this is the sad part. The 10-day is about 55% accurate. So now that number, what that's doing is that's attempting to, to talk about the accuracy of a single-point prediction. Now, what we do is we don't often give you a, and well, I know you may have an app that does it, but we don't often give you a, a specific number for any day beyond, you know, probably four or five days. And why we don't do that is we instead say, look, the probability of you being in this range is X. The chances of you getting more rain than normal is X. That's a good way to do forecasting. It's all very probabilistic. Now, what happens after that is we, we call no man's land, okay? No man's land is about... Mm, 
day 14 to day 45. We're terrible in that range. There's too many moving variables that really kind of at any given time could upset a forecast and really back it up. And we don't even attempt to give you a day-by-day forecast. It's more like, hey, look, week three could be wetter than normal because of these five things. Uh, Most of that's speculative. What's interesting is we actually have a little bit better performance when it comes to the three-month to nine-month time period. Because all we're doing there is we're looking month by month at the chances of being above or below average with respect to some variable, be it precipitation or temperature. So our skill comes up a little bit, but uh, it's still not something you could bank on. And by the way, if anybody could do it or if I could do it, you know, we would never tell anybody about it. <laughs> you know, we we would go and make some huge trades in the global energy and, and, and grain markets and then we'd all retire. So it's it's one of those things where chaos takes over. It's a nonlinear dynamic system atmosphere is and it's just hard to predict so as a farmer then how much should we rely on those forecasts and helping us make decisions then because obviously what you do is very important but as we think about these long-term forecasts should i really look at those to help me make some marketing decisions or think about what i'm going to do in the year ahead uh the answer is yes but it's one of these situations where i tell farmers never swing for the fences don't don't go for the home run and don't bet the farm on a forecast i've run into a few different growers across the country that will hear a long-range forecast and they'll say like oh you know it looks like it's going to be massive drought and they may change a large portion of their farming strategy such that if that doesn't happen, that they're, they're going to be out money. You know what I'm saying? Like, for example, I met a farmer in northern Wisconsin who normally grows corn and soybeans. In 2016, he heard a prediction that it was going to be super hot and dry. So a February forecaster said in February that the upcoming summer was going to be just the worst drought since 2012. So he decided to put up a whole bunch of hay rather than growing corn and beans. Because last time in his area, there was a massive shortage on hay. The price went through the roof. And if you would have had hay, you would have made a lot of money. And what ended up happening is 2016 was a phenomenal year. So what I tell people to do with long-range forecasting, if it maybe makes you make a little bit different decision on your strategy with respect to application, if your strategy with respect to um, your, your planting time, if it makes you think differently about when you might do fungicide, you know, things like that, then yes, but never adjust a strategy more than a few percent based on a long range forecast. In other words, don't change your acres, keep your rotation, do the things you know to do, stay the course that's kept you in business for so many years and don't get speculative you know, with us. But here's the other part of it. Remember, in my personal opinion, and I, I think I could get a few people to agree with me on this, most times the futures market on which we buy, buy and sell our grain moves on a story rather than the truth. Do you know what I'm saying? <laughs> sure. So so what I mean here is that if we start seeing a lot of forecasters agree that something might has a high probability of happening, the markets will take that and bet against it and bet with it. And so a lot of times what you'll see here is you'll see a, a, a grower look at a forecast and instead of changing their operations, they change their marketing strategy on it. And that, I think, is something that can be done because I tell people to do this all the time. You should take what I say and you should you should pin me up against all the best forecasters out there and you should play a game where we're all against one another and and you see who's got more accuracy. Right. That's that's what I want people to do. I want them to use me as a part of their understanding of how it's going to behave. But the reality of it is we're predicting, like I said, the future behavior of a nonlinear chaotic fluid and our skill 
is not what everyone would hope it would be. Sure. So give me an idea then, you know, I think some of us forget about La Nina, El Nino, and what do they mean and where are we at? I believe it's La Nina that's we're at now. So what should we think about as a pattern that we might look at uh, going into spring, summer, even fall this year? Yeah. So here's the big idea. There is a, a weather phenomenon that happens with, it's pretty irregular in its frequency, which means you can't predict it very well, but it's basically where the trade winds either go really fast across the Pacific or they go slow. And to be honest, we don't fully know why they change speed. When they go really fast, we have a La Nina. And the symptom that we see is cold ocean temperatures. You get a lot of upwelling. When they're going slow, where they slow down or even reverse, those waters get really warm. And we call that El Nino. And this is why we care. When there is a La Nina in the center Pacific and the trade winds are screaming, it tends to rob the momentum of the jet stream that comes over the Midwest. What that does is it gets the jet stream big loops. It tends to get blocked and stuck. And we tend to have a lot of more on the extreme side of weather, either too much rain or too little. So, for example, this year we have a La Nina. We've gone into drought in the western half of the country. The eastern half has been soaked. Uh, on the flip side of that, in 2019, we were coming out of an El Nino and it was wet everywhere. OK, so you see the, the difference here is all about the speed and momentum of the jet stream. El Ninos tend to pick it up. La Nina's pull it back. So most growers in the Midwest, if I say we have the upcoming year being an El Nino year, there's usually grins on people's faces like, oh, good. That's a better chance that I won't be dealing with drought. We say La Nina, and that historically gets us thinking about some of our, our hottest and driest summers. It's not a guarantee. The correlation at any time between an El Nino, La Nina, uh, and Midwest weather is about 0.3 to 0.4. It's not 0.9. So it's one of many factors, but it's the biggest. That's why we watch it so carefully. So given that then, is this summer then truly pretty unpredictable uh or what do you what do you see as far as our forecast for perhaps the midwest and some of the main corn belt growing areas yeah so the reason why it's difficult to predict it today you know here in, in mid-march is because we've yet to really get into what we call uh, the past the spring barrier i mean we just started spring right so here we are we have to see where the jet stream ends up adjusting in spring once the sun angles get higher the heat builds back into the system and then from there, we have a better idea on where it's going to go. It's like this. You know, if you watched a river all winter and it had ice on it, you don't yet know what it's going to do in the spring until it thaws. Well, we're kind of doing that with the atmosphere. We're waiting to see it get out of its winter mode into spring mode and then we can predict better. But there is right now a better chance that we either have neutral conditions or La Nina conditions throughout most of this growing season. And therefore, there's risk this year, elevated risk over normal of drought. You add that to the fact there's already drought in places, and now we have a situation where I think there could be greater pressure on the crop to the west of the Mississippi, where the drought already exists, and possibly tighter planting windows and wetter conditions east, based off of information I have here through mid-March. So do you think those drought conditions, you mentioned those, do you think the east, though, has a higher probability of continuing to stay wet or enough moisture, or does the drought move back to the east? Well, if it's going to move back to the east, there's no indications it's going to do it through spring, not no indications at all. And then I look at that and I compare it to history because history would tell me that you look at the states of Illinois, Indiana, Ohio, Michigan, Kentucky, Tennessee, the eastern Corn Belt, right? And you say, what what's happened for the last 40 years or 60 years? We know that that particular area has seen an increase of about five inches of rainfall from April to October. So trend is up on precip. 
And they've also uh, seen tighter planting windows because of increased rainfall since 1980. That region's lost on average about five workable field days based on the USDA's definition. So there's tight windows just based on history. This is just a year where I think that's going to be a continuation of those things. You know, Eric, you mentioned that the long term as we look back, and I, I know that you enjoy looking at that, and I enjoy hearing some of those trends too. We hear about climate change, and not that we're diving into that subject, but it is interesting to see how things have changed. How much have we changed as we look back, if you want to go 20, 30, 50 years? Are we seeing more or less moisture, more or less working days? How do you see this weather uh, changing when you look at the same spots on the map over great periods of time? Yeah, I mean, if we if we just said, what would those numbers be for the primary corn and soybean belt? Okay, so that, that particular stretch of land. Uh, here's what we've observed, okay? Um, nearly every state from Ohio to Kansas to South Dakota and back, okay, that, that triangle has seen at least a doubling or a tripling of the frequency of heavy rainfall events. So in other words, when it rains, we're tending to get bigger helpings of rain followed by longer stretches of drier weather. We define that as more than two inches of rain in a day. We look at the total precipitation for the whole of the primary corn and soybean belt. Since the 1950s, it's up about four and a half inches. Wetter east, more of an increase in the east, less in the west. Temperatures. For most of the corn and soybean belt, the max temperatures in the middle of our summer are flat. In other words, there's no upward or downward trend. Where there's the biggest trend is actually in overnight lows. So our overnight lows have come up. That's pushed our frost season a little bit wider. So our frost-free season, excuse me. So we're now seeing on average between about seven and 14 days. So one to two weeks of additional frost-free season throughout the growing season, which is good. I mean, that's a benefit. Um, the other part of this is, is that over that same time period, there's another variable we measure called precipitable water. It's just how much moisture is in the atmosphere that can rain out. It's up about 15%. So if someone in layman's terms says, what are we seeing? Ah, we're a little warmer overnight. We're a little juicier. That's it. That's climate change, by the way. Just so you know, <laughs> when you hear it from a scientist, that's how we study it. That's what we like to present. Because if I'm a grower, I want to know if there's underlying change because I'll make decisions based upon that. So those are the numbers we have. You mentioned that underlines change. And, you know, we had a guest on, it's been several months ago now, that talked about just where cotton has grown and that it's moving higher. And, you know, in another 20 years, we could be growing cotton in Iowa just because of that. Do you see that we have changed a lot in where we can grow crops just because of what you're saying over time, that we're going to continue to see uh, these changes? And perhaps that does change what we can grow or what works best in those areas? Yeah, it's always it's always got two parts to it, right? You know, I was talking to a group of growers in North Dakota where since 1990 they've added it's about 7 million acres of soybeans. And some of them are even being as aggressive as growing like a group 2 bean. Now, that that takes a long frost-free season. They're actually trying to also grow 110 115-day corn. Um <clears throat> I said what why? And they said it's two reasons. One, growing those things over what we were growing here that makes more economic sense, more money, easier to transport bigger markets. So I want to grow that stuff Two, We more often than not have a growing season where we can do it. Plus there's the insurance vessel in the background that says, if I try to do it, it doesn't work. I have that protection. So there's a lot of different factors, but weather and climate's one of them. Then you go just North of there into Canada. I mean, Canada, the Canadian prairies added something like 9 million acres of corn. 
since uh, the 90s. And that's a huge increase. But they'll say the same thing. Since 1950 through the Canadian prairie, they're about 50 millimeters wetter than they were back in the 50s. So 50 millimeters is uh, we're bordering on two inches of extra rainfall. So they've got more moisture, a little bit longer growing season. They can be more aggressive with these type of crops. And those type of crops have a global marketplace that wants them. So I think we have to wrap it all up into a bigger economic discussion, plus a weather discussion and climate discussion. But yeah, that's it. Eric, before we run out of time, we've mostly focused, of course, on North America. What do you see in South America right now? How's their crop finishing up? How's the weather uh, impacting perhaps Brazil, Argentina, those growing areas? Yeah, it was er the early season problems are done, right? So the southern Brazil growing areas, which is a huge area, about 40 percent of their total production was hit with a massive drought. So it was Paraguay, Uruguay and Argentina. So that pulled, as we all know, the total production mounts back about 20 to 25 million metric ton. The safrina crop went in fast. That's the second crop. It's mainly grown north in Mato Grosso over to the east. They've been a little drier here in the middle of the month of March. What we have to worry about is that, that continues as we go into April. There's no indication that it's really going to get dry there, but that would be the same time that that crop's going to pollinate. Then it'll all be about seeing if the monsoon's going to hang on through the beginning of May. If it does, the crop will finish well. It'll hit its targets, which are somewhere around 112 million metric ton. There's a possibility that it does that. So I don't see nearly the stress on the safrina crop that I saw in the first crop of soybeans. As we look at the, the rest of the world, any things that you see that uh, might be going on that will end up impacting some of the producers here at home? Yeah, I mean, a couple of things that I'm watching, first of all, Australia, which is now in harvest, right? Different seasons in the Southern Hemisphere. They are, uh, they've been in places absolutely flooded out by heavy rains, complements of La Nina. Uh, in fact, in Brisbane, which is over on the East Coast, back at the end of February, beginning of March, over about a 10-day stretch, some places recorded over 800 millimeters of rainfall. So that's 30 inches in about a week and a half. So where I'm from, that's uh, that's three quarters of our annual rainfall. They just got in a week and a half. So the flooding was terrible. Uh, crops are late in coming out. There's just been a lot of moisture in place. You know, a wild card for me is going to see how the Chinese growing season starts off. Um, I'm still up in the air on how they finish their winter. It's kind of hard to get some data out of China. We're going to watch the Indian monsoon very carefully again this year with the La Nina. There's a chance of a pullback of the monsoon that it's not quite as healthy as it normally is. And of course, all eyes are still on what's happening in the Black Sea and in, in, in Ukraine area uh, with the war. But, you know, lately they went over quite cold in mid-March. Um, I don't know what that did in terms of kind of freezing up some mud. But uh, we're all kind of concerned about the weather conditions there just because of there will be farmers trying to get a crop in. But in addition to that, just to how it may affect the war efforts in that area. Eric, why don't we finish up with this? You know, we're ready to get out in the fields here pretty soon, hopefully in a lot of places. What should farmers keep in mind when it comes to the weather? Something that's fairly unpredictable, but yet you try to predict <laughs> it. So what should we keep in mind? It's that last frost. This is the time of year I get asked about the last frost all the time. So what I would do is I would I would just be paying very close attention to the moment those soil temps get up to the ranges we want. So well above 50, you know, we start seeing them routinely at those temperatures. And then you get past about, I, I usually tell folks, get past 75% of your normal last frost date. So in other words, if you look at the distribution, for me in central Illinois, it's April 17th. I want to see us get past about April 24th. And then I'm like, the chances of having a late frost really start to diminish. You know, the other the other thing to be just thinking about all this is the moment they plant, 
I, there's a bunch of great resources I can point people to that, that we build here at Nutrien that'll just start keeping track of everything you want to keep track of. I think keeping on a good crop calendar with respect to weather, is just a smart and easy thing to do. And that's one of the great things that Nutrien lets me build. And I like to, like to share with folks. Well, are there some things that people should be aware of that would be some good tools for them to use? Absolutely. So I actually produce a daily report that goes out for free. It's no obligation. If, you, if someone signs up and they don't want to ha- stay signed up, they could just unsubscribe. It won't hurt my feelings, but it'll actually give them access to all the tools we're building right now with respect to weather at Nutrium. Uh, and you get it five days a week, just covers the main things I'm watching around the country. I hyperlink everything. So if you want to see something and want to bookmark it, tools that I use every day, boom, you'll have it right there. The easiest way to get it is just to email me at eric.snodgrass at nutrient.com. That's E-R-I-C dot S-N-O-D-G-R-A-S-S at nutrient.com. That's nutrient, not nutrient. And uh, I'll make sure and get you signed up for it for free. And again, you can unsubscribe if it's too much. All right, great. Eric, I always appreciate the time. Good uh, info uh, that you're able to share with us. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I always enjoy listening to what Eric has to say. Not only does he give you a good overview of what's taking place in the world, but he also is enthusiastic about what he shares. And I find I always learn something about how the weather works, so to speak, and how changing weather patterns within a year or even over the decades will impact what we do. Remember, you can hear all of our shows at farmingthecountryside.com, on many local radio stations, or on your favorite podcast platform. And you can follow Farming the Countryside on Facebook as well. I appreciate you listening. I'm Andrew McRae. I'll catch you next time on Farming the Countryside. This edition of Farming the Countryside has been brought to you by Pivot Bio Proven. Turn to a better nitrogen. Learn more at pivotbio.com.